Hey, this is Matthew Lilly. Welcome to the Presence Pioneers podcast. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a Presbyterian minister that we're going to talk to about the Tabernacle of David today. So this is going to be fun. He is an author and a scholar, Dr. Peter Lightheart. And we're going to see if me, a charismatic prayer guy, can talk to a Presbyterian minister about the Tabernacle of David, see if we can find some common ground, some insight into how the Bible would would invite us to worship. This is going to be a fun conversation. We've never really had this conversation, so it's going to be in real time. You guys are going to get to see this conversation. He's written a book about it called From Silence to Song. It's actually one of my favorite books, and so I'm, I'm really honored that he's on the podcast today and excited to get to talk with him. Before we dive in today, look, if you're new, thank you so much for tuning in. The Presence Pioneers podcast exists to equip you and your community to experience God's presence through day and night worship and prayer. We believe God's presence changes everything. And so we release episodes on Thursdays. They're either going to be a short little Bible teaching or an extended conversation or interview with a leader in the prayer movement or a Bible teacher. It's going to help equip you and encourage you. So please subscribe, stay in touch with us. Uh, We would love to track with you and help you experience more of God's presence. You can visit our website at presencepioneers.org learn more about our ministry. You can also donate to support our ministry and the podcast there also if you would like to do that. All right, Dr. Peter Lightheart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be with you. It's a huge honor to have you on today. You are the uh, president of the Theopolis Institute. I know you're an author of many books and, uh, and a scholar. You got a PhD from Cambridge, so you're a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> it's great to have you on today. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to share about who you are, what you're involved with, maybe what the Theopolis Institute is? Sure. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Thanks for asking. Uh, I guess one thing I'd add to my bio is that I'm father of 10 children. Amazing. Most of them grown. Uh, We have one 16-year-old still at home, and uh, we've got uh, 13 grandkids and counting. So uh, that's been a huge, huge part of our lives. Great blessing to us to have... uh, had those kids and now another generation coming. The Theopolis Institute, we started seven years ago. It's a Christian educational ministry, a kind of think tank. Uh, really, the, one of the central things is, a, is an effort to build a community of pastors and students who have a common vision of what the church's life should look like, what the church's worship should look like, a common understanding of how the Bible should be read, and we train leaders uh, in biblical studies. We do a lot of teaching in liturgical theology and worship. Uh, and in our understanding, all of that has a missional dimension to it. So when, when you have a church that's biblically rooted, uh, that is saturated in Scripture, uh, in biblical teaching, but also has a Scripture that's woven into the worship of the church, uh, and then you have a church that's, that worships vibrantly and is faithful in that worship, then that becomes a church that has an impact on the world, transforming the culture around it. So the the goal is to help the ch- help churches to reform and to be uh, more faithful, but with a view to how that affects the church's mission in the world. That's amazing. You're articulating in a different way 
in, in a large part, what my ministry and many others give themselves to, which is a focus on worshiping and praying, what you would consider liturgy. Mm-hmm. If we do that right, believing that that's going to be catalytic unto mission and the transformation of the earth, and the fulfillment of Great Commission, the transformation of cities, right. basically that heaven, you know, the earth would look more like heaven, that God's right. kingdom would would be more manifest on the earth as it is in heaven. And, yeah, uh, the, the, and the image we often use is uh, um, a, a biblical thing that starts with uh, Genesis 2 and really runs all the way through to the end of the Bible. But uh, Genesis 2 has a description of the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And the Garden of Eden is not uh, Adam and Eve's original home, but it's a, it's a sanctuary. It's a place of worship and right. communion with God. But uh, it's from the garden that you have uh, waters flowing out, four rivers that flow out to the different edges of the world. That image gets picked up in the tabernacle, the temple. It gets picked up in the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47. After the visionary temple is described in great detail, then Ezekiel sees this water flowing out it starts under the throne of God and then flows out through the temple, flows out into the land, refreshes the land, and then flows out to the Dead Sea and actually makes the Dead Sea turn into fresh water and brings fish to life. And of course, that gets picked up in Revelation 21 and 22, the same vision. So we have a, a, an Edenic vision of a place of worship, a sanctuary, that's the source, it's kind of the spring from which living waters flow out to the world. We think that's that's what's happening when Christians gather for worship. They gather together in the presence of God uh, as a new humanity in a kind of Edenic setting. And then we flow out. We're, we're the living waters that are sent out in the Spirit to uh, bring refreshment to the world. So that that model has been really helpful for us to, to think about the centrality of worship. But not just, I mean, you have liturgical traditions that just get centered on worship. And just doing the liturgy right becomes the whole the whole reason for the church's existence and don't pay much attention to the world. Uh, we think the way you worship is important, but it always has this missional dimension to it. Yes. Yes. That's so good. Well, I want to talk with you today about the tabernacle of David, the way David worshiped. Yeah. Uh, and actually we could probably even connect a thread with David to Adam, uh, mm-hmm. because I think there's even the book of first Chronicles begins with Adam in the, Yes. In the genealogy actually begins with Adam as if David is a picture of a greater Adam. Uh, And so uh, I would love to talk about David, the tabernacle of David. This has been a fascination of mine. We've done a couple other podcast episodes on this topic as well, which we can link to in the show notes. And uh, yeah, so so how did you get into this uh, this topic? I'm curious. Maybe before we even dive into the theology too much, how did you how did you even get into or interested in studying this? Because there, there's actually not a whole lot of uh, deep study on this topic. There's only a, a, a few books and a few resources that I've been able to find over the years, and yours have been uh, very helpful for me. So I'm just curious, how did you even get into this? Well, there's several different sources for that. Um, uh, one of them is uh, my old friend and mentor, James B. Jordan, who's been a Bible teacher for 35 years. Um, I say without much exaggeration that I don't know anything I didn't learn from Jim. Uh, and he's not only a great Bible teacher, but also a, a, a very accomplished amateur musician. He's never been a professional musician, but he knows he knows music really well yeah. and has been interested in the musical d- dimensions of Scripture. 
many years ago, he's, he was talking about the Psalms and he pointed out that there's all these references in David's Psalms to uh, entry into the temple. But of course, if those are really Psalms by David, he can't be talking about the physical temple because Solomon is the one who built the physical temple. So that, that's still in the future when David is writing these Psalms. So what is he talking about when he's talking about gathering in the temple courts? And uh, Jim's suggestion was that he's talking about a human temple, kind of an anticipation of the church as the new temple of the spirit, a human temple that's primarily a temple devoted to song. Because before the temple is built, you have a you, the tabernacle is destroyed and the temple isn't built for about 100 years. And during that interim, there's no place, well, there are places you can sacrifice, but um, the, the, the altar is still set up. But uh, when David is talking about gathering for singing, he's talking about gathering together, not in a place of sacrifice, but in a human temple. And song is the crucial form of worship there. So that suggestion stuck in my mind. And then I, I came across a book by a Lutheran scholar named John Kleinig called The Lord's Song. I footnote this extensively in my book because a lot of what I what I say about, especially about Chronicles, comes from his his work. And he's looking at the musical elements within the books of Chronicles and pointing out how the, the ways that music is described in Chronicles and the, the role that it plays in the liturgy of the temple, what David does to set up this whole system of musical worship. Uh, so that was, uh, that was another element that came, that came into it. And then I, I came across a, um, there's an Australian charismatic whose name I've forgotten now. You might know his name, but he he wrote a book on the Tabernacle of David. Probably even either Kevin Connor or Graham Truscott, probably one yeah. of those. Yes, it's Kevin Connor. That's who it was. Yeah. Um, and I I somehow got my hands on his book and realized uh, that there was there was a lot there to explore, not just in terms of the uh, liturgical aspects of it, but also just in terms of the 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 role of the tabernacle of david in the sweep of biblical history it's a it's a very unusual kind of institution yeah um and so uh, those things kind of converged and i guess the the also deep in the back background uh along with james jordan i had spent a long time studying the book of leviticus as a way of thinking about worship and then moving from leviticus into thinking about how things are similar and different in the temple system that was another another part of the origin of the book. Yeah, awesome. Well, just to to bring everybody, the audience up to speed here, just for the sake of context, I'm sure many of you are familiar with David's tabernacle. What we're talking about is when David becomes king and he sets up a tent on Mount Zion uh, in Jerusalem after, after conquering that area and moves the Ark of the Covenant to that tent in Jerusalem and establishes a unique expression of worship for Israel's history in that time that that lasted during his reign and led kind of led into Solomon's reign and the permanent temple that he established kind of prepared the way for that in a lot of ways. But you call it the Davidic liturgical revolution, which I think is appropriate. And what I appreciate about your take on this is that you ask the challenging questions that very few people ask. The, the questions that challenged me and provoked me as I started to look into this topic, I said, wait a second, how does David get away with this? <laughs> why is he allowed to do this? Why, why is the ark in this tent instead of in the tabernacle like it's supposed to be? Why is David acting like a priest? 
Why is he bringing music into the picture, which most people don't think it's weird to have music. But at that time, if you look before that, there, there was no instruction for music in, in the Mosaic law other than some trumpets that would sort of, you know, gather people together or, or sort of act in that way. But music as a primary way of, of ministering to God and really in, in a lot of ways replacing burnt offerings uh, at least in Zion during the Tabernacle of David. This, these questions, I was like, why? How? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me that this could even work. And when I started to dig into it, I found very few people even asking the questions, better yet, answering the questions. Mm-hmm. And um, and you asked the questions. So what are some of the problems? Because I think your first chapter is called The Problem or The Problems of Davidic Worship. So get into that. Let's before we answer the questions, what are the questions? What are some of those challenges? I kind of kind of threw out threw some of them out there, but why was it so revolutionary what David did? Yeah. Well, in um part of this has to do with the perhaps differences in our in our traditions and our way of reading scripture and how it applies to worship. Uh in in the Presbyterian tradition, there's a strong emphasis on what's called the regulative principle of worship. Mm. And by that, we mean that our worship has to be governed by Scripture. You're not allowed just to make up uh, worship practices because they feel good or because you think God might be pleased with them. Uh, Worship is always an obedient response to God's Word. And so that was part of the question that I was trying to to answer uh, from within my own tradition. You have, as you've already pointed out, you have a system where you move from animal sacrifice and then David sets up this alternative sanctuary, which was not prescribed in any specific way. And that doesn't, that's not, there's no sacrificial worship. There are no animals being sacrificed there. Now, this is during a time when the tabernacle, early in, early in the book of Samuel, this is toward the end of the period of the judges, the, the tabernacle of, of Moses is dismantled. It's captured by the Philistines, and it's never put back together. That's one of the oddities of it, too. Why didn't David just put the ark back? Because the, the tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle is still around. Uh, it's still there in the time of Solomon uh, when he when he receives a vision from the Lord and the Lord gives him choice what he what he wants to receive. That's that's in that's at the altar of the mosaic tabernacle. Yeah. But that's not where the ark is. So you have the separated sanctuary and it's never put back together in the same form. So that was part of the issue. You have the the shift in in a form of worship from animal sacrifice to song, which is not, uh, doesn't, isn't any way developed in the Mosaic legislation about worship. And then you also have the odd, uh, the apparently odd phenomena of the, the ark being cared for by Gentiles. It spends some time in uh, the home of a Gittite, who's a, a, somebody from Gath, presumably a Gentile, a Philistine, Gath is the same city that Goliath came from. So this this guy's from the same hometown as Goliath, and somehow he's qualified to care for the ark. That's right. weird. And then there, there's one moment where David seems to enter into the presence of God in in this ark sanctuary, and, and he just sits down and talks to God in the ark sanctuary. None of the Aaronic priests ever sat down in the sanctuary. Mo, uh, Hebrews makes that uh, makes that point that they're always standing because they're always something to do. Yeah. They never take their rest. And they aren't, even if they were to sit down, they wouldn't be in front of the ark. Uh, there's a screen dividing the area that the priests operate in from the inner sanctuary where the ark is. 
So David seems to have an access to, to God's throne that's unprecedented. So all those things make this a, a unique moment in Israel's history because as soon as the temple is built, you have animal sacrifices. Uh, they're, they're part of the temple worship. You have the divided sanctuary instituted again. Uh, people can't just walk in and sit in the presence of God the way David seems to be able to do. Well, everything's handed back to the priests, and they're, they're the ones who are taking care of the taking care of the temple. There's aren't there aren't any Gentiles who are part of the priesthood. So there's this moment when all these odd things are happening, and so that was that's the set of questions I was trying to trying to work through. Yeah. So this that's the tabernacle of David. <laughs> so let's get into the answers. What are some of the solutions? Why? Was David able to get get away with this? What exactly is going on here? Yeah, well, I think that there. I think David. This is where John Kleinig's book, The Lord's Song, was really helpful to me uh, because as you look at Chronicles, which Chronicles is First Chronicles is the main source that we have for this the uh, institution of the Davidic Tabernacle. Uh, it's mentioned in Samuel, uh, but we're not told a lot about what was done there. Uh, there's much more information about it in Chronicles. And one of the things that Kleinick points out is that the terminology that's used in Leviticus to describe the work of priests in the tabernacle or the work of Levites, that terminology gets transferred over to uh, music and song in the book of Chronicles. So sacrificial terminology yeah. is being used to describe music. For example, there are various sacrifices that are described as memorials. In, in Leviticus and Numbers. So the, the portion of the animal or the or the bread that you put on the altar, it's burned on the altar and it ascends before God as a memorial uh, to him. Similar to the, you think of the rainbow in uh, after the flood, where the rainbow appears in the sky and it's a memorial reminding God of his promise. That's that's the way that Genesis describes it. It's not a it's not a, an aid to to Noah to remember anything. It's an aid as it were an aid to God to remember. So the sacrifices play that role. Uh, you offer something on the altar and it ascends to the Lord. He remembers His promise. He forgives your sins. So that's the that's part of the function of sacrifice in the Levitical order. But now that that notion of memorial gets transferred over to music, and the the singers, the Levitical singers, and the instrumentalists are playing and singing and memorializing before God. If you think think about that kind of, uh, what would that, that involve? You know, maybe singing some of David's psalms, psalms that would recount uh, the Lord's acts in the past. They're singing about the Exodus and about God's protection of Abraham and the Lord's conquest of the land, the gift of the land. And they're singing all these things before the Lord, and that ascends in sound, and the Lord hears their singing, and as it were, those things come to the Lord's mind, and he acts again to do the same thing. So wow. uh, Israel, whenever Israel remembers the Exodus, they're asking God to deliver them again right. from the new enemies, because they're always got new enemies. Yeah. So that, that whole idea of memorial gets transferred over to, to song. Um, so well, just, the, just to jump in, to make, to, to make yeah. that point clear, that was, a, that was a great point. You're saying they're singing of what God has done as a memorial thanking him, recounting those things, praising him yeah. for his deliverance and all that he's done. And they're saying as they do, as they sing those things, there is some expectation that God's going to do that again as they 
as they sing and they praise God for what he's done, they're, they're now believing God's going to do the same things in the present day. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Amazing. Yeah. So there's, it, it's, there's this interesting dynamic between memory and uh, recounting things in the past and future hope mm-hmm. and anticipation. So we're, we're actually better equipped for the future, the more rooted we are in the past. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the biblical pattern. Uh, when, when, uh, Moses is encouraging the Israelites as they go into the land. The book of Deuteronomy is all delivered just on the edge of the promised land. And he's telling them what they're going to have to do when they go in. But more than any other book of the Pentateuch, he talks about remembering things. Remember what the Lord did in Egypt and remember what the Lord did in the wilderness. And as you remember those things, then you'll be encouraged in hope to go in and and conquer the land that the Lord has promised to give you, because the same God who delivered you from Egypt is going to is going to give you the land yeah. and uh, defeat the defeat the Canaanites. That's good. So I think, and I think that's just to just to wind that up. I think that's part of our our worship too. Right. Our singing is also memorial. It's a sacrifice, a sacrificial memorial before God. We sing of what God has done in the past, uh, so that He will continue to do the same thing over and over for us, so that right. He'll continue to deliver us and give us victory. Yeah. So to sort of bring that into the New Testament, we obviously as Christians are going to sing about Jesus, the fact that he's come, that he died, that he rose again, that resurrection of his life. As we sing that, we're expecting resurrection life in our own lives, in our own world, that he's going to make things new. He's going to take dead things and make them come back alive. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think, and I think too, that we can um, incorporate all of the Old Testament songs into that same framework because right. I mean everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus says that um, the Psalms are the Psalms of Jesus. They're the they're his songs, and so all the stories about the Lord's deliverances in the past are for, foreshadowings of the deliverance of Jesus from the grave. Yeah. So when we when we sing about those old events, those aren't those aren't just old events. They're, those are part of Jesus' story. And so those are part of our Christian part of our Christian song too. Yeah, awesome. Which is why, throughout history, the church has used the Book of Psalms in, in worship. Yeah, right. uh, e- even those who haven't necessarily thought about the Tabernacle of David, they're singing the songs of the Tabernacle of David many times yeah. Uh, yeah. when they use the Psalms in their worship. Uh, so here, I'll throw this out to you, and and be curious if you considered this. In I can't remember in your book if you get if you do or not. But some commentaries in my own study, the idea of Melchizedek comes up when you begin to look at David. You know, David was the king, of course, but he began to function as a priest, even though he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. Uh, He wore an ephod, and and like you said, he went right into the presence of God and interacted with God and sang songs to God that were like offerings to the Lord and that kind of thing. I have this... This is a guy named Scott Hahn. I don't know. I think he's a Catholic guy. He wrote a commentary yes, on yeah. on uh, on First State Chronicles as well. But yeah. um, he talks about this too. He says before the this procession, there's only one biblical precedent for a righteous king performing priestly functions: Melchizedek of Salem, who brought out the bread and wine and blessed Abraham in in Genesis 14. He's the first person to be designated priest and and king. And so I don't, I don't know if you considered Melchizedek, you know, obviously in the New Testament, he comes up again in the book of Hebrews when it's talking about right. our worship. 
And even Hebrews, it also uses this phrase, offer to God sacrifices of praise, which to Mm -hmm. me sounds very much like Tabernacle of David kind of idea that our Mm -hmm. praise, our our song would be a a sacrifice to the Lord. So yeah, if you considered Melchizedek or this idea of the order of Melchizedek and and how we we look at, at David's tabernacle and even how we worship. Hey guys, this is Matthew. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider joining Presence Pioneers Premium, our brand new subscriber community. Paid subscribers will get exclusive premium content, such as bonus podcast episodes, exclusive articles, early releases, and more. Presence Pioneers will be releasing its first e-course in 2024 with many more to come. And the Presence Pioneers premium subscribers will always have full access to the entire library of online courses. Visit media.presencepioneers.org or click the link in the description to join today. You can become a premium member today for an introductory price of only $5 a month. When the price goes up in the future, as our library of resources grows, you can stay subscribed at the original price. If you've enjoyed our podcast for a while, becoming a premium member is a simple way for you to help us cover the cost of producing this podcast and partner with Presence Pioneers in equipping the church with resources for day and night prayer, prophetic worship, missions, and revival. Visit media. Dot presencepioneers.org to sign up today. I don't remember. I, I wrote that book a long time ago. So I'd have to look at it to yeah. uh, remind myself if I brought that up. I do think that there, that's one of the things that's unique about that moment. It's, it's a founding moment for the Davidic kingdom. Uh, you don't have other Davidic kings doing that. Solomon can't go into the temple in the same way that David seems to be able to go into the, before the ark. None of the other kings do that. The one king who tries to do that is Uzziah, and he's cut, you know, he, he's stricken with, he's struck with leprosy, and he's, uh, because he tries to offer incense inside the temple. Mm. So like a lot of these other things, there seems to be a unique moment in Israel's history when David is king, and you have the founding of this new order of things that's uh, that's centered on David. And so David begins to carry out those the kind of double function you have—you have, you have Sol- Solomon and the other kings performed quasi priestly roles. They um, Solomon is the is kind of the the leader of the dedication of the temple. He builds the temple, yeah, uh, and he supplies the sacrifices for the dedication ceremony. So he takes on a, a quasi priestly role, but not nearly as strong as David does. So David does have this kind of Melchizedekan uh, role, but it's it's for that that brief period of his reign, it doesn't continue on. So that and other things make me think that this moment of the Davidic tabernacle, this is a a very strong anticipation of the order of the new covenant. Yes. So where you have a another Davidic king who is also a priest, Jesus. Yes. You have Jews and Gentiles together who are uh, have have the responsibility, priestly responsibility to care for the Lord's throne. Uh, you have the kind of access that David has. All those are anticipations of what we enjoy in the new covenant, but they're, they're only for that short time when David is king. And I think one of the things that uh, is, has been curious to me 
the tabernacle of David is mentioned in uh, in Amos, right? Uh, and that's the passage that's quoted in Acts 15, when you have this dispute about uh, Jews and Gentiles in in the church, and and whether Gentiles need to be circumcised when they come into the church. And James's answer to that is to quote this section of Amos 9 about the re-erecting the tabernacle of David, um, which um, doesn't seem particularly relevant to the question right. until, you real, until you realize that the tabernacle of David was this one instance where you had Jews and Gentiles together in kind of one body uh, serving in the Lord's house. So I think the, the Melchizedekan dimensions of David are part of that typology that's pointing ahead to the to the order of the new covenant. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I as I've studied it, that that idea, the Melchizedek idea, helped me because I mean, Psalm 110 says you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which David wrote that, which obviously was ultimately prophesying of Jesus, who who would be our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But it helped me to realize that in my perspective, David wasn't necessarily functioning within the same Levitical priesthood because he wasn't, they weren't doing the same things that were happening in the tabernacle. Um, like you said, right. there was this unique window of time uh, where in many ways it was a seemingly the order of Melchizedek. It almost looked new covenant in, in mm-hmm. David's day, uh, which was, which was pointing to Jesus, of course, but this mm-hmm. day that they would, you know, the priestly and the kingly would come together where there was access to the presence of God. And, you know, and I guess the music is part of that as, as well, right? That, 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 yeah. that worship, which kind of leads to something that I would de- definitely want to make sure we get into is what does this have to say about how we worship as Christians? Because that's sort of a, the relevant issue, isn't it? It's, it's interesting, but if, if this is pointing to something in the new covenant, then maybe David's worship, Davidic worship, has you know more impact on how we should worship than a lot of people give it credit for, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are several things that are going on there. Uh, one, as I've already mentioned, is the way that music takes on these sacrificial qualities. Yeah, and you have uh, the sequence seem, it seems to be this: you have the mosaic, the mosaic worship at the tabernacle, which is primarily an offering of animals. As you mentioned, you do have trumpets that play a limited role, but there's no there's no reference, at least, to singing along with the sacrifices. Right. And then you have this period in the temple where these two things overlap. You have scenes in Chronicles where, in in the rededication of the temple with Hezekiah, uh, they're offering thousands of animals, but they're also singing as the as the smoke of the animal goes up into the sky, the sound of their voices goes up into the sky. So you move from purely animal sacrifices to animal sacrifice along with human song, and then that's all fulfilled in the new covenant, which is humans singing, offering our, uh, you could say, offering our life's breath, mm-hmm. the way that the animals offer their life's blood. So the, the emphasis on song, I think, is crucial, and understanding song as sacrifice of praise and having the kinds of meanings in the church that the sacrifices of the old covenant do. And as a practical thing, one of the one of the uh, points I've made is you think about how important was sacrifice in Old Testament worship, and the answer, of course, is it's everything. I mean, right. that's that's what worship was. Well, now music is the new covenant form of sacrifice. So, how important should music be 
in our worship? How large a role should it play? So, and I think it's it's got to be huge. The whole the whole uh, I, I think that the uh, preferable pattern is for the entire worship service to be sung, and we do that in kind of a traditional liturgical form. Yeah. But if I'm leading the worship service at a Theopolis course, uh, I'm singing as the minister. I'm singing my parts, and we're we're singing back and forth. All of the all of the responses are sung responses. That's cool. Uh, and we're chanting psalms together, and uh, we're we're singing prayers. We sing the Lord's yeah. prayer. Yeah. So for, kind of from beginning to end, it's musical. That's interesting. The other thing that I, I think we can draw from both the Davidic t- tabernacle period and the temple that followed is the role of musical leadership and expertise. Because there are dedicated clans of Levites who do nothing but play music at the temple. And it's hard to tell how many there are. There are yeah. probably hundreds of musicians and singers who are part of this uh, musical ministry. You think about the the great cathedrals of of uh, Europe when they were thriving and the kind of, uh, or, you know, the kind of... Uh, uh, musical life that they enjoyed there, or the you know some of the some of the uh, uh, Lutheran settings after the Reformation, where you have a Bach who's composing cantatas to perform an, a new cantata or a new piece of music each Sunday for the choir and the congregation to perform. Wow, uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of dedication of resources and expertise that you had given to the music of the church, and I think that's a that's a rare thing in our day. Of course, a lot of churches can't afford to do that, but churches that have the capacity are often devoting resources to other things, often good things. But I think the this Tabernacle of David phenomenon should uh, revise our priorities, and we should think more about what kinds of resources should be put into the musical life of the church. Totally. Yeah, I would I would agree with that that point wholeheartedly. And what's interesting is you and I were talking before we started the episode about how we've helped launch prayer rooms that are totally musical. I mean, when the prayer room is open, there's music going the entire time. There's instruments being played. It's not always, (laughs) well, it's never on the level of Bach, but it's (laughs) many times it's volunteer based, but people doing the best that they can. And sometimes it's, you know, it's really good stuff, but you know, there's music going the whole time. There's songs of praise and worship. Many times, sometimes people are singing scripture, Sometimes they're praying and then singing prayers, and so that's a that's a phenomenon that's happening in our I say our world, sort of the charismatic house of prayer world that a lot of people mm-hmm. that tune into this are familiar with, and and to yeah. me it's an interesting parallel that you're you're in this liturgical reformed world, and you guys are saying hey we need to sing or we need to have music almost the whole service if not the whole service we need to mm-hmm. sing god's word we need to sing our prayers we're in a totally different world but we're saying hey let's do music for hours or hour or extended times of music and let's sing our prayers let's sing and pray god's word very different expressions and very different approaches but we're c- kind of coming to to yeah. to similar things in some way so that's kind of interesting to me yeah yeah, yeah. But I think that um, again, Jim Jordan taught me everything I know. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the couple of things that he says uh, the importance of song, put it, putting words to music is kind of, is a glorification of the words that you're using. Every time we speak, there are musical qualities in what we say. So I have I've been speaking with different pace. I I hope that my my pitch has been going up and down. That I haven't been speaking in a monotone. 
they're, they're kind of musical qualities to speech, but then when you put that to music, it's elevated, it's glorified. And that uh, that makes it a, a suitable, again, a suitable sacrifice to the Lord. It's giving him our best, not just words, but words that have been glorified. The other point that he's pointed out to, um, this is uh, this will, uh, I assume, appeal to you and to your audience, but the, the role of the Spirit as a, a source and inspiration of music. Yeah. I mean, that's clear in Paul. Uh, being filled with the Spirit means that you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and make melody in your heart and sing to one another. That's uh, kind of the, in, in Ephesians 5, the kind of the immediate effect of being filled with the Spirit is that you start singing. And I think that's that's rooted in the within the Trinity. Uh, God is a speaker. The Father has an eternal word. Uh, but I think uh, we can make this inference from the whole of Scripture that the Spirit is the one who glorifies that word. Mm. If you want to speculate a little bit, the Spirit is the music within the Trinity, the music wow. of God. Yeah. So we, if we're in the Spirit, then song is just the, the natural overflow of that. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that picture. Yeah, music, music glorifies the words that we're, that we're singing. And Jesus is the Word, and the Spirit glorifies the Word. And therefore, you could say that in many ways, the Spirit is the music of the Trinity. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that another dimension to this, another part of the this has come to me uh, more strongly since I wrote the book. I, I did a wrote a commentary on Revelation, and um, there's a lot of a lot of singing in Revelation. Interestingly, one of the things that I noticed in Revelation four and five is the transition from what's happening in the heavenly worship before the Lamb appears, which is there aren't any musical instruments. Yeah, they're just saying things. Yeah. Then the Lamb appears. He's the line from the tribe of Judah. He's a new David. Yeah. And then the, the then the harps are out yeah. and they're singing. Yeah. So it's the same kind of transition you have in the Davidic uh, tabernacle period when you move from spoken to sung worship and you have musical instruments that are introduced. But the, one of the things that happens in Revelation is the role of music in preparing the witnesses of the church for martyrdom. Uh, you have a scene in Revelation 14 where the the 144,000, which I think are the completion of the, the, the whole, the full total of martyrs, uh, they're on Mount Zion with the Lamb, and they're learning the songs of heaven. In the course of the chapter, they're being harvested. Their blood is going to be poured out. They're going to become martyrs. Uh, but before they're taken up into heaven in martyrdom, they're already joined to heaven in song. So I think one of the reasons, pastoral reasons, uh, and I guess cultural reasons too for singing is to uh, prepare a congregation for bold witness. And we know this psychologically that when we sing enthusiastically, it, it increases our our courage. We want to go out and you know bash somebody's head in. That's why <laughs> that's why you have that's why you have music at the beginning of a sporting event because right. you want to be you want to get into the zone. Oh yeah. Uh, and vigorous singing in a church has the same. I think kind of psychological and spiritual effect. It prepares a congregation for, for martyrdom. Yeah, that's true. That's good. Yeah. Uh, John Piper says, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. You know, yeah. It, yeah. it fuels mission. I believe worship, our yeah. worship does and right. mu music, especially, uh, you know, has, has that impact. So I love, I love that. So any other thoughts on how I know we're running out of time here, but any other thoughts on, how 
the way David worshiped should impact how how we worship. Do you guys, I'm curious, do you guys use musical instruments uh, in, yeah. in your worship? We do use some. There, there is a strain of Presbyterianism that uh, uses no musical instruments, right. that just has a cappella singing. I think that's a mistake. Uh, there's a, the church is the new temple, and so we take over the worship of the temple, not with animal sacrifice, obviously, because Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice, but other elements of temple worship come over into the church. And I think music is a huge, huge part of that. So, and it's, yeah, it's not just song. Um, David not only has a band of Levitical singers, but he has instrumentalists yeah. and they've got stringed instruments, lyres and harps. They have brass. There are trumpets. They have cymbals, uh, loud crashing cymbals, different kinds of cymbals. So there are a certain kinds of percussion uh, in the church that I attend. Um, we have, uh, kind of classic, classical uh, instruments, a violin and a cello and sometimes a viola and a, a semi-charismatic Presbyterian who plays the trumpet <laughs> and plays it very enthusiastically. So uh, that gets us kind of a, a little bit of excitement in our music. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that would be another area where I think the churches need to think seriously about investing the resources to have not just sung worship that's well done, but also having instrumental accompaniment that's, uh, that is of high quality, that's suitable, you know, that's something that you would present to God, that mm. uh, it needs to be as, as best as we can do, yeah. as good as we can have it. So that, that would be definitely be one of the applications I would make. Yeah. Now, and I guess, the, I don't know if you're, if you're fishing for this, uh, but you keep talking about how David worshiped. And um, I mean, everybody knows David danced. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, we don't dance in worship. We're Presbyterians, so we, we're pretty motionless. <laughs> um, much to our detriment, I think. Uh, you know, I think the biblical picture is of uh, worship. We worship with our bodies, mm. and there's a tendency in some Protestant churches to to uh, minimize the use of the body in worship, which I think is a a theological and a practical error. And we're just too we're just too tight. We, we need to, we need to get loosened up somehow. <laughs> yeah. It, it's always funny to me when people will read Psalms that talk about lifting your hands or shouting or dancing, uh, and not actually do it. Uh, you know, right. so. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, we sing about clapping our hands. We don't clap our hands in worship. <laughs> we do lift them. We, we, we do lift our hands yeah. and we do, uh, we do kneel and we, I mean, we go through different postures, but, yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, we, we're we're pretty stiff, and it it wouldn't hurt us to be to be loosened up some. <laughs> I, I wasn't fishing, but that's that's uh, <laughs> that's good uh, good insight there. And by the way, I just I was thinking you were talking about Revelation four and five. It's really and then the the instrumentalist in David's tabernacle. It's interesting there. I, I do think there's some parallels between what David did and what you see in in Revelation four and five in the throne room. I mean, I know that yeah. one. One striking one to me is that David seemed to have 24 uh, teams or le primary leaders of, of the musicians in First Chronicles 25. There's 24, yes. 24 groups in heaven. You see 24 elders. And so, you right. know, and those elders, like you said, have harps uh, in, in Revelation 5. And so I think there's some interesting parallels there between, you know, the idea of the worship in the heavenly throne room and what David was doing and the idea that he is, you know, in, in some ways trying to bring heaven to earth with, with the worship that he was setting up. 
And right. so, yeah, yeah, fast. Yeah, and I think that's I, I think that is the the uh, that's the connection to make uh, with Revelation four. Uh, there are a lot of other ways to interpret those twenty four elders. When I did my Revelation commentary, I, I translated that word as ancient ones, because I think when you, when you say elders, then it, it gives a, I think it has a certain overtone of you know, like somebody who has a church office. Right. But if you ancient ones, it sounds like you know these are the angels who were who presided over the old world, and they're the ones who are worshiping in heaven until the saints take their place. And now we're up there with them yeah. and we're worshiping together with them. But I think, yeah, I think that connection with Chronicles is exactly the, the right connection. Yeah. Amazing. Well, look, we're out, of, we're running out of time here. Any, any last comments or anything you'd like to say or any way that people can, you know, stay connected with you or anything like that? Well, we do have a website, uh, theopolisinstitute.com and we put up articles every week. We have a weekly couple of episodes of a podcast every week. Uh, we have a, a YouTube channel with short videos. I'm going through a, a series on Revelation right now on the YouTube channel. So uh, if you want to get learn more about the Theopolis Institute, uh, the website is the place to start, and then you can go from there. Perfect. Awesome. Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Matthew. It's been great. Yeah. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, look, if you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with your friends. Share it on social media. Give us a little thumbs up on YouTube or a rating or review on Apple. All that stuff helps us to just get the word out and uh, equip and encourage more people. Don't forget, God's presence changes everything.